Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Really great to see such a turnout for this event, which is about the Iranian Revolution. And it's been entitled Revolution in Iran, 1978-79, Assessments and Reassessments upon the 40th Anniversary. And obviously, we have a fantastic panel today. We're still waiting on one of the speakers, but he should be here very, very shortly. My name, if you don't know, is Skandar Sadri. I'm a fellow here in the Oriental Institute. Okay, so I'm not going to talk very much. I'm just going to basically just introduce our panel. And Professor Atabaki should be here very, very shortly. So first of all, I think Stephanie will be speaking first. She obviously is no stranger to any of you. We can think it's fair to say she's one of sort of the most illustrious sort of, sort of social historians of Iran, of her generation. She is currently the Elahe Omid Yar Jalili Research Fellow at St. Anthony's College, is a member of the Faculty of Oriental Studies here in Oxford. She is the author of several books on modern Iran and the Middle East, and she is currently working on a social history history of modern Iran from below, so history from below, I'm sure you're aware that that's where her interests uh, reside. She's looking in particular at the relationship between modernism and marginality, and from what I gather you're going to be talking about the global 70s and its implications for understanding the Iranian revolution. Our second speaker is Dr. Siovoshiranj Ber Doemi, who is currently a lecturer in modern Middle Eastern studies at the University of St. Andrews. His main research interests are the evolution of the state, political party activity, the press in modern Iran and contemporary Iran. He recently published a very important book, which I suggest you all read, on the presidential system within Iran and its evolution following the revolution. It really is a very, very important contribution to our understanding of post-revolutionary Iran. I can't recommend it highly enough. And his second monograph promises to be equally, I think, important and hopefully will change our understanding of crucial years following the revolution between 1979 and 1981, tentatively entitled The Other Revolutionaries, looking at those members and supporters of political groups, uh, civil society organizations, and other associations who participated in the revolution of 1978-1979, but did not gain incumbency in the state institutions of the newly formed Islamic Republic and were expelled or eliminated from the public scene in 1981. And he's going to obviously be speaking to that topic in his talk. Our final speaker is equally a very, very illustrious figure in the field, one of the leading, or probably one of the pioneers of social history, probably along with Stephanie, as well as people such as Ervan Abrahamian, obviously Professor Turaj Atobaki. Hopefully he'll be with us uh, very soon. And I think he's going to be talking about whether the revolution was inevitable. And that's been something he's been speaking about all over town, as it were, on a regular basis and discussing with great vigor. Professor Atobaki is a senior researcher at the International Institute of Social History. And he is a professor emeritus holder of the chair of social history in the Middle East and Central Asia at Leiden University. He first studied theoretical physics and then moved to history where he did his um, doctoral dissertation under the supervision of Ervand Abrahamian on ethnicity and regional autonomy in 20th century Iran, which was published in 1993. Professor Atobaki has called another pro number of projects, including social history of labor in the Iranian oil industry, which promises to yield a number of really important groundbreaking works. And I know several of his PhD students have really done important work in this area and are really transforming the way we understand questions of labor and the oil industry in 20th century Iran. 
And there are a long list of accolades and books which Professor Atabaki has acquired over the years. I won't belabor that. But yeah, I just wanted to obviously finally just thank obviously Stephanie for taking the initiative to put this together. I mean, Oxford would be remiss to not hold such an event, given that these are sort of happening all over the globe at the moment and across various different university campuses. So many thanks to Stephanie. And now I'll get out of the way and let her just her talk to you. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Iskander, for that very generous introduction. Anniversaries are important. They provide an opportunity, almost an inescapable responsibility, to look back and to assess and reassess the significance of a particular event. And I thought what I'm going to talk about in this short time I have available is how we might look at the Iranian Revolution from a perspective which is slightly different to the one that's usually adopted. The 40th anniversary has attracted a lot of attention in the press. There's a lot of articles in the media and they're online about trying to understand what the revolution was all about. And they almost always focus exclusively on what happened in Iran itself. There is, for example, a very fair and balanced article by Michael Axworthy, who recently published a book on the revolution and the Islamic Republic in the New Statesman. And and he explains in fairly easy-to-understand terms what happened in Iran. And he looks at things like the marginalization of the ulama by the Pahlavis, the role of Khomeini, the problem with oil economics, the nature of the Shah's regime, and, and so on and so forth. There's another interview with Marvin Zonis, for example, who some people either of great age or long memories will recall used to be an expert on the Pahlavi regime before the revolution. And he does much the same thing. He's interviewed and he explains what happened in Iran, looking at Iranian history and politics. But I think you can't really understand the revolution or the Islamic Republic which emerged from it by this approach alone. And what I want to do in in the next few minutes is to see what light can be shed on both the revolution itself and the set of institutions that emerged from it by looking beyond Iran's borders to see the Iranian revolution as a global event and to take a comparative perspective when trying to assess the significance of what happened and the meaning of it. So that's what I'm going to try to do, although of course I haven't got long to develop this, but I'm going to throw out some ideas for you to consider and we can discuss them more in the Q&A. The first thing which is interesting I think about this 40th anniversary is the amount of attention that it's attracted. It isn't qualitatively different to the 30th anniversary or the 20th anniversary or the 25th anniversary or the 10th anniversary, but it seems to me that it's attracted much more interest than previous decade anniversaries have done. And I think this again, this can only be understood by reference to the global context. Uh, The situation in Iran has not undergone recently any dramatic shifts. I suppose you can call the the, the policy, if policy is the word, of Trump that that has changed things, but the fundamental uh, hostility between the US and Iran is not new. So why this amount of interest recently? And I think it's to do with what I'm going to talk about throughout this paper, which is to do with historical periods. 
And a historical period is not necessarily any a particular length of time. A historical period can be quite short, it can be quite long, it can change from one historical period to another quite rapidly. And I think what we're seeing now is a, is a shift in the historical period from being one which lasted from the 1980s <coughs> until recently and which was characterised by the hegemony of neoliberalism, by a, a discourse in which the US presented itself as a force for democratisation, what Francis Fukuyama famously called the end of history. And I think what's been demonstrated over the past few years is that this is actually not the end of history, but actually a phase in historical development, and we now seem to be entering another one. And I think that's the reason why the 1970s have become such a fascination. There's so much fascination about the 1970s among a younger generation. It's almost as if the, the ideological and cultural wars that were fought during the 1970s have resurfaced dramatically. And there's one, there's one example which is quite interesting. When you, when you look at the Iranian Revolution, one of the, the most important influences in turning leftist political groups towards the armed struggle was someone called Carlos Marighella, whom you may have heard of. And there's just now, recently, this year, come out a film about Marighella, which has ignited the debate very much in the same terms as it took place in the 1970s. So I think looking at the Iranian revolution from a global perspective is part of this bigger attempt to recover and, and own the history of the 1970s. I want to say something which may strike you as a bit of a truism and maybe a bit trite, but I think it's important to say it when we look back. We are accustomed to looking back at the Islamic revolution, the revolution of 1977-79, through the prism of 40 years of the Islamic Republic. And I want to try and get away from that today. I think we need to try to look at the revolution as the revolution saw itself. And this gives you, I think, a different perspective. Of course, if you look back through 40 years of war, sanctions, human rights abuses, etc., etc., it's going to colour your view of the revolution. But I want to look at it, as I said, as the revolution saw itself, which I think will give us a different kind of feeling. How does the comparative approach help us to understand the revolution? Well, firstly, I think the big mystery when people look at the revolution and at the regime that emerged from it, the, the kind of central paradox which people always refer to is, how did that egg, the revolution, hatch this chick, the Islamic Republic. It's almost as if they're two entirely different processes. And that's one of the things I want to try to explain today. How it was that a revolution which had the character of the Iranian revolution could end up with a regime <coughs> such as it did. There are various answers, sort of broad interpretations of why this happened, and they tend to be versions of the same thing. The first explanation, the common explanation, is that Khomeini and the supporters of Khomeini were clever, guileful, cunning, concealed their true motivations and stole the revolution, hijacked it. This is one common interpretation. Another common interpretation, which is a variant on this, is that it was the left's mistakes, or crimes if you like sometimes, which 
undermined and demoralized and allowed Khomeini to emerge triumphant. And this goes quite far to the point where you now have many people who participated in the revolution who think that that was a mistake, that they should not have done that. And this is very unusual in terms of revolutions. I think because revolutions have a utopian dimension, they always involve a disillusionment on the part of people who participate in them. This is, I think, universal, and, and it has to be that way. There is no other way that this could happen. The thing about the Iranian revolution is the speed, the rapidity, and the depth of the disillusionment that set in almost immediately afterwards. This is very unusual. If you look at other revolutions, you see, look at the Russian Revolution, for example. Among those people who participated in the Russian Revolution, despite what happened, despite Stalinism and the purges and all the rest of it, very few of those people pined for the days of the Tsar. I can't think of anyone. Similarly, if you look at the Sandinistas, the revolution in Nicaragua, which took place contemporaneously with the Iranian Revolution, there is no nostalgia among ex-Sandinistas. No matter what travails the country has gone through, there is no pining for the days of Somoza. So I think the fact that this, this particular disillusionment characterized the Iranian case in, to an unusual degree, and I think we, we need to look at why that was. Another way that you can use a comparative dimension to try to look at the Iranian revolution is this question of democracy. There's a lot of criticism of the revolution because it didn't produce democratic institutions in the Western sense. It didn't produce parliamentary government, the separation of powers, an independent judiciary, a free press, free elections, and so on and so forth. Now, you can argue about the extent to which there are democratic processes at work in the Islamic Republic, but it didn't produce that. But again, it seems to me that this is unrealistic when you look at the history of revolutions. Revolutions, generally speaking, do not produce democracies. On the contrary, they produce strong states. This is true not universally, but it's very much typical. Look at the French Revolution. It produced the terror and the, and the directory. Look at the Russian Revolution. Even look at the English Revolution, which produced Cromwell. Now, you can say that in the long run, the French Revolution produced democracy, but it was a very long run indeed. You could say that the English Revolution contributed to the, the development of democracy, and, and that's probably true. But again, it's 350 years later that this country actually got full universal suffrage. So I mean, criticizing the, the revolution because it didn't produce democracy is unrealistic. When we look back as well, the left again is criticized because it didn't understand the nature of the forces that it was in coalition with. And this is probably true. But the fact is, again, when you think about the 1970s, no one understood what was actually involved in the resurgence of political Islam as represented by Khomeini. I think it's important to remember, although we're so familiar now, we, we hear it in our sleep, this idea of political Islam. In the 1970s, no one was familiar with this notion of political Islam as a powerful political force. This was something that the Iranian revolution really began. That you had, of course, in, in the Iranian case, Islamic activists in the revolutionary movement, but the kind of Islam that they drew on was, as I'm sure everyone knows, that kind of Islam that was developed by Ali Shariati and was 
again very similar to the kind of liberation theology that had been developed in, in the 60s, 50s, 60s and 70s in Latin America. This idea of political Islam as an ideology which could mobilize millions of people, take power and hold on to power was not something that anyone really understood or could take into account. And this was as true of political tendencies across the secular spectrum. Again, how did the 1970s understand revolutions? The 1970s had one example of, of revolution in its mind when it thought about revolutions, and that was the <coughs> Russian Revolution. This was the overwhelmingly dominant template of a revolution which occupied the minds of people uh, in the 1970s. And this was the way people thought about the Iranian Revolution. And this again encouraged people to make assessments of what was going on in the Iranian context by reference to the Russian model. Now, I won't belabor this because I know that uh, Siavush is going to talk about this idea of the Iranian Kerensky, but there was a very strong feeling among people who participated in the revolution that the exit of the Shah was merely the first stage in what was going to be a revolutionary process and which would produce eventually some sort of socialist republic. If you look at Fred Halliday's first edition of his book in Iran, that's exactly how it ends. So the left developed its strategies according to this model. Now when you see things in this light, it becomes much easier to understand why sections of the left decided to lend their support temporarily and contingently to Khomeini and his supporters. Because no one at the time anticipated that this was representing a stable and long-lasting form of rule. This was a transitional period and it was in a way heralding the arrival of something much more attuned to expectations. I can see that I haven't got. How long have I got? No, no you're okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Again, when we look at the 1970s, we look back at the Iranian Revolution and it seems to stand out as a kind of unique and uniquely significant event. But again, in the 1970s, it didn't appear like this. The 1970s was really a decade of revolutions, and the Iranian Revolution was just one among many others. There was no reason to suppose, really, that it had any particularly problematic character. It happened in 1979 at the same time as the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua. And if you look back at the 1970s, there is a slew of revolutions. Practically twice a year, someone is being overthrown. I mean, of course, towering over all this is Vietnam. But beyond Vietnam, you have, even in 1978, a, a kind of revolution in Afghanistan which brings a kind of Communist Party to power. You have what Fred Halliday called the Ark of Crisis in the Horn of Africa. And in Europe itself, there are many such examples. This is why the, the left in the 1970s is often criticised for its kind of romanticised third worldism. But another thing which is very important to remember is that there were revolutionary upheavals in the heart of Europe as well as in the Third World. The Portuguese Revolution in 1974, for example, the overthrow of the dictatorship which had lasted 60 years in Portugal as a result of the defeat of Portugal's colonial wars in southwest Africa. You have the collapse of Francoism in Spain after the death of Franco himself. You have the collapse of the colonels in Greece. The Greek military junta, which had ruled Greece between 1967 and 74, also collapsed. You have 
these events happening right in the heart of Europe, even in the UK, these are the years of free dairy, when the British officials and the British army couldn't actually go <laughs> into parts of, the, of, of Northern Ireland, which were and are still part of the United Kingdom because of the strength of the civil rights movement and subsequently of, of Irish republicanism. The Basques are another example, uh, and there are many more. So I think we look back on the Iranian Revolution and try to puzzle over it. In the 1970s, it was merely one in what seemed to be uh, an ongoing process of global crisis. Of course, the 1970s had other lessons. We all know that there was a great deal of fear in 1979-1980 that there would be another Mossadegh episode that, and, and Khomeini declared that he was not going to be another Mossadegh. But I think the 1970s actually provided the Iranian revolutionaries with another much sharper example. And I think Khomeini also was determined not to become another Allende because that was the example which was really sharp among political opinion uh, around the world. The overthrow of Salvador Allende by a, a military coup inside the country which caused uh, a, a tremendous psychological uh, trauma across the world. So I think the 1970s shaped the revolution in a decisive way. You can't understand this process of the revolution without looking at these events which were going on around the world. The Iranian revolution was really a child of the 1970s. If you look at the political forces that were involved, they were shaped crucially by what was going on around the world. The discrediting of traditional communist parties, in the Iranian case, the Tudor, but this had happened across the world. Communist parties now discredited as being either on the one hand Stalinist or on the other Euro-communist and sometimes both at once. This meant a, the radicalization of a younger generation in the form of a new left. This dated from May 68 in Paris, uh, maybe before. The turn to armed struggle of that, of that group, of that generation, which again was something that happened around the world. I can remind you again, not just in the, what we used to call the Third World, but in Europe with the Red Army faction in Germany, uh, the Bader-Meinhof group, the, the Red Army faction in Japan, the Red Brigades in Italy, the Basques, the Republican movement in Ireland. This was a global phenomenon and the Iranian example has to be located within this global phenomenon. Now, I think to understand the revolution we can't look at Iran alone. We have to place it in this global context to understand the character of some of this. How to answer my original question, does the Islamic Republic fit into this idea of the global shaping of events. And I think this also can be understood by looking at the global context, although it's less immediately obvious. But I think if you look at the late 1970s, what you see is the emergence of a kind of deadlock on a global scale between the forces of the left and the forces of the new, newly resurgent right. Of course, in, in, in Latin America in particular, starting with Allende, this neoliberal authoritarian experiment had been Im introduced in various countries, in Argentina, for example. I have one minute. What I want to end on is this notion that although the revolution was the product of the 1970s, the Islamic Republic was the product of a different historical period, which is the 1980s. 
And the 1980s were characterized by neoliberalism, by social conservatism, by authoritarianism, and particularly by the rise of conservative Islam. 1979 did not just see the revolution in Iran. It didn't just see the return of Khomeini. It saw the attack on the Grand Mosque in Mecca, and it saw the beginning of the Saudi-funded Mujahideen conflict with the PDPA in Afghanistan. And over the next year, two, five, conservative Islam was going to completely replace the notion of Islam as a radicalizing leftist force. And this was what happened in the Iranian context. And just to conclude, what I want to say is that history is a matter of timing to some extent. And the thought I will leave you with is to ask, had the Shah clung on had he managed the revolutionary movement differently to the way he did, had he had some degree of hegemony among some social classes in Iran, I wonder how the 1980s would have treated the Shah. Without this, I think, understanding not just of the global dimension but also of the historical period, we miss something in the Iranian case. And the revolution happened on the cusp of this really tectonic shift in global politics. And the 1980s would have been much more favorable to the Shah than the 1970s were. And who knows? So I'll leave it there. Participants or bystanders, the non-clerical internal opposition to the Shah in Thank you very much, Eskandar, and I would like to thank Stephanie again for inviting me to this talk. So my speech is on effectively one of the early parts of my new book, and it is premised on a key uh, historiographical point. You will be all familiar with many of the works on the Iranian Revolution. Many of them have on the cover Khomeini, the clergy, the rulers, the clerical rulers of the Islamic Republic, including my, my own very important first monograph, as Iskandar put it. Uh, today I'm talking about something else. Without being revisionist and without claiming that the Iranian revolution did not have eventually Khomeini at its helm, I will make the case that we, look, we need to look at other actors as well when we are looking at the period between 1977 and 1979 in order to understand the dynamics of the Iranian Revolution. And by rest, I mean a varied group of mostly secular uh, and definitely non-clerical actors that were active in the revolutionary upheaval between 1977 and 1979 and I'm dealing with those actors that were based inside the country. So we have an active opposition outside the country based on the Confederation, for example, the students, the Tudor party based in East Germany, parts of the old parties that were based in Europe and America. But we also have a group of remaining politicians from the Mostag era, dissidents who had drifted to the sidelines of uh, the public sphere by the end of the 70s, but were still alive. Uh, they were uh, occasionally being able to publish in, uh, in the country's press, they would congregate privately, and they would remain outside the state elite. They were, they were not co-opted into uh, the Shah's regime as some parts, uh, some members of the Tudeh, some members of the Third Force, and some members of the uh, National Front and the other old parties were. So. 
Alongside these groups, in uh, 1977, of course, we have the armed militants as well. These were groups that came out of the 60s through processes that Stephanie alluded to. They were committed to armed struggle against the Shah. They were the ones who bore the real brunt of Savak repression. And they were really characterized by having no respect whatsoever for the Mashruta constitution. This point is important, as we will see later. And of course, the well-known and the principal groups among these, I can't really label all of them because of time, are of course the Mujahideen al-Khalq, who went through a bloody spit in 1975 when part of them became Marxist and part of them remained uh, religious. The, the Marxist wing kept going outside the uh, outside prison, but the religious wing was really restricted to the surviving members who were effectively in jail. Uh, I, I find very little activity, very little uh, proof of activities of the religious wing of the Mujahideen Khalq outside prison. And then, of course, we have the, uh, uh, the Fadoyone Khalq, the Cherikoi Fadoye Khalq, the other main armed group. They didn't go through any major split until 1980, but they were decimated by the uh, incident on the 8th of the year, uh, 1355. That's in 76, if I'm not wrong, when Hamid Ashraf, the charismatic leader, was, was killed uh, in his hideout alongside with another group of senior members. Uh, but they retained the ability to operate outside prison and occasionally engaged in bombings and sabotage and produced communiques throughout this period. <laughs> the key feature about this group was that these were the younger generation. Uh, practically none of them, by 1979, when the revolution succeeded, was 40 years of age. Uh, they were mostly 30 or 35-year-olds who had spent at times a decade of their life in jail, much of their adulthood for that matter. The key uh, ideologues and the inspirators of them were wiped out by the early 1970s or, or assassinated by in reprisal shootings like Bijan Jazani and others by Savak. And uh, their key objective in this period was really that of carrying on minimal amounts of activities while avoiding really political extinction. So the other group we could define as, as more or less a civil society dissidents. These were oftentimes older, they were a generation before the militants, at least. Included older movements that were thrust to the sidelines since the 50s and 60s when the last attempts at some form of bringing in, for example, the National Front uh, failed and the National Front uh, really did, did not really function as a group inside the country. But they were still pretty much anchored to their beliefs, their little kowtowing to the Shah's occasional advances, advances and uh, attempts at co-optation. They at times maintained a toehold in the media, would meet informally. And what is interesting about this group is that most of their activities was really premised on the whole idea well into 1978 and well past some of the key stages of the revolution in respect of the constitution. And they kept saying to the Shah that your problem is that you're not respecting the constitution. So they were, in a way, reformists. But reformism, as we know, even from Iskandar's wonderful book in, his, in the book that was just published, is a very difficult proposition in Iran, whether before or after the revolution. So what sort of organizations did this group have? Well, most of the activities of this group are really due to, uh, to Carter. Carter and his famous uh, human rights program, which 
forced the uh, Sabak to relent a bit on, on, on repression and not allowing any form of activity. That's known as those eras and is known informally to this day as Jimmy Kerasi. And the main groups here were the Iranian Society for the Defense of Freedom of Human Rights, which was an umbrella group, actually, bringing together very rather different people from rather different persuasions. For example, Mehdi Bazargan and some of the Nezata Azadi, who had a religious background, were part of it. Uh, Karim Sanjabi, the leader of the National Front, played a key role. The essayist Ali Askar Hatser Javadi, who again was from a third force and then a secular background, uh, was also part of it. And they, they came together to, uh, to promote adherence to the human rights. They kept calling for the respect of the constitution as well. The Jombesh group uh, starts publishing in February 1978 and brings together secular left-leaning uh, intellectuals in a loose way and is led by figures such as uh, Islam Kazemiyeh and Hatse Javadi. Uh, the Kanuni Sandegan Iran, the Writers Guild, it re-emerged in, uh, in 1977 again as a consequence of Jimmy Karasi. And then we have the National Front. The National Front is important, as we shall see later. It uh, re-emerged in, January, in June 1977 through a famous open letter of three of its leaders, and then re-established as the Union of National Movement. Here I pay homage to uh, Omar, who doesn't like the term National Front, on the 24th of October uh, 1977. Uh, but did not really engage in sustained activity as a political group until July 1978. These dates are important because, as you see, they really show how these groups took some time to get off the ground and, and be active uh, during 77 and 78. So what was the first phase of all of this? And the first phase of all of this was writing letters. So we have uh, famous cases. The first famous letter was by Ali Askar Hotse Javadi. And these letters were all about uh, complaints about the tail end of the Hoveida premiership. It was 13 years that Hoveida was in power. At the very end, even if you go through the memoirs of the Pahlavi era elite, uh, that is, for example, present in the Harvard Iranian oral history, you come across instances in which uh, there is the claim that really things were breaking up, the economy was not in a good shape, there was considerable stagnation within the political elite and more. And these, these were the sort of targets of these open letters. Uh, again, they were all reformists because they were calling for the respect of the constitution. And they were far away from what Khomeini was saying or, for, or what the guerrilla groups were saying that was a, a wholesale sort of revolt against the regime. And the constant refrain was this. In uh, the letters of Hatsi Javadi and the ones of the three National Front leaders, the Shah had violated the principles of the Mashrute uh, constitution. Now, these groups were detached from society, and that was important for them, because the lack of a, of a, of a strong popular reaction meant that Sabak nervously tolerated them. And the reason why they kept going is that Hatsi Javadi was not thrown into jail for writing his, his letter. The three National Front leaders were allowed to carry on and were not, were not persecuted straight away. So this toleration, which emerged as a consequence of the lack of mobilization caused by these letters, actually allowed this activity to carry on. Where it changes is the Goethe-Nights. Uh, many of you will know about what the Goethe-Nights were. were uh, there were 10 nights of, of poetry readings at the Goethe Institute in Tehran, and they witnessed an incredible amount of participation. And this participation spread outside Goethe. It led to the first clashes. And in the period following the Goethe-Nights, the students in various campuses in Tehran universities tried to bring the writers into the campus for continuing the Goethe Nights. 
And uh, there was a famous episode around a month after the Goethe Nights where the prominent writer Beazin was supposed to speak at the uh, present-day Sharif, the Aryameh Technical University. This was repressed by police, there was violence, and this was the start of the process of the letters which created some form of mobilization. This predates the whole episode of, of course, the clergy protesting against the Rashidi Motlach letter by around a couple of months. But this is when this form of genteel letter writing turns into something that generates mobilization. And uh, this, is, uh, this is an example of how, of how the Savak was trying to react to all of this. On the 3rd of Azar, which is more or less December, right, there was the Ada Gorban, you will know, a prominent uh, religious, uh, religious feast, and uh, a group of National Front uh, uh, leaders had organized a, a gathering outside, in a private park outside Tehran, known as the Karvan Saray Sangi. Uh, and this was, and Sabak members turned up and started beating all of them up, and many of them ended up in, with, with bloody heads and wounds, and, and the thing never really got off the ground. Uh, and Sabak, in order not to uh, be seen as breaking this whole tenet of Jimmy Kerasi, started claiming that this was all due to, uh, to workers who were just going past there, and wrote an article which, which is straight out of either Pravda or what the Islamic Republic would later write about these uh, uh, about about opponents claiming that they were drunk on vodka cola and, and all sorts of stuff. So, more repression continued as the revolutionary activity sort of picked up. Sabak kept going with all manner of repressions, and this is one of the issues that to answer Stephanie's question. Well, Sabak kept persecuting the people they knew all the way to the end, and. Uh, I'll go quickly because uh, time is, is running out. In the midst of the revolution, as these groups kept going with their own activities and kept trying to mobilize when the parallel process of the, of the morning, of the 40-day morning ceremonies and all the uh, Khomeini-led protests were carrying on, the press also starts to detach uh, from censorship. During the Sharif Imami uh, government, uh, the press succeeds in obtaining a formal ban on, uh, uh, on censorship. And newspapers such as Iron Dagon in particular start to push the envelope, uh, so much so that when uh, uh, on the first, pretty much on the first or second day of the military government of Asari, uh, military censors break into uh, the Iron Dagon office, they seize the issue of the day, and this precipitates a 62-day press strike. Now, the consequences of the press strike was that it actually prevented, in my view, these groups from gaining even more critical mass, because the press was starting to cover the activities in, a, in an assiduous way because of the lack of censorship, and this, and the lack of coverage in, these two 62, in those 62 days, which went up all the way to the start of the Bakhtiar government in January uh, of 1979, really created a void that was, of course, exploited by the group that was much better organized in communication, uh, the mosques uh, and the clergy. So to conclude, uh, I will provide some insight over what the most prominent of these non-clerical groups, uh, of course, excluding an Izzat al-Azadi, uh, was doing in terms of political activity. And this is the Fourth National Front. The Fourth National Front emerges formally on the anniversary of the July 1952 uprising, the famous Tier uprising. It calls on a manifesto which again, imagine this, in July of 1978, is calling for the full respect of the Constitution, addendums, and the Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights. 
And then this is the period in which progressively they start to get coverage. And Etelat, for example, publishes a, a first interview with the leaders of the National Front, Sanjabi, Bakhtiar, and Furuhar. And those eagle-eyed among you will notice that these photos of Sanjabi and Bakhtiar are at least of 20 years earlier. So these people were so far away from the public scene that uh, one of the biggest newspapers in the country, Etelat, did not have updated photos on its file on Sanjabi and Bakhtiar that don't look at all like they looked in. Uh, 78. Four National Front leaders try to form a government. They all fall short for a variety of reasons. We can go through it in the Q&A. But what happens is that the National Front gains traction. This is an interesting case of one of the communiques of the National Front that has been copied by the Navid organization that was part of the, of the Tude Party uh, organization in uh, Iran. And uh, it shows how uh, the Navid organization was thinking that in September of 1978, the National Front was finally starting to break away from the edifice of Mashrute and moving towards the uh, revolution. Uh, two quick points to finish. Of course, the, the main crisis point of the National Front was Shapur Bakhtiar who is seen as the Kerensky of the revolution at times, to, uh, to quote Stephanie again. And uh, he progressively, especially after Sanjabi's trip to Paris and his alignment with Khomeini, he starts to progressively break away from the rubric of the National Front. But on the 29th of December, the main party, the more main constituent uh, element of the National Front, the Iran party, holds its first plenum in 20 years. It approves a document in which it reaffirms Sanjabi's alignment with Khomeini and uh, accepts to go with Khomeini as a leader of the revolution, elects Bakhtiar secretary general. All of this happens in Bakhtiar's residence. The same evening, Bakhtiar goes to the Shah and uh, accepts the Shah's invitation to become prime minister. So if you allow me, I think, and we can talk about this in the Q&A, that Bakhtiar's agency in this period really makes him more uh, similar to Don Quixote than to Kerensky. <laughs> And to really conclude, one quick point on the Fadayan. The Fadayan managed to keep a limited presence to the publication of pamphlets, and they only really start to believe in the struggle after, uh, on the day in which actually Ayandagan was raided by the military in Azari's garment, and the, day, the days before there was serious strife at Tehran University, and that's when they think that the revolution is really picking up momentum. So it only happens in pretty much October or November of, 19, uh, of 1978. The two had a very peripheral role in all of this, but a new organization emerges called the Etihad Demokratique Mardum Iran. It's led by Behazin. And it started to propose an agenda that was similar to the Tudeh, but was different from what Keanu Reeves would later impose on the party when he came back. And specifically, it, it really did not accept the whole principle of Islamic government. Of course, Be'azim was trying to build this, but he was thrown into jail for a couple of months. So these groups had activities. They were important. The reason for which they were not more prominent in the revolution was to do a bit with the way the Shah I think the Shah's regime persecuted, it, persecuted them to the end, but also because of all these years of indecision and all these years of being on the fringes, deprived them of the ability to act as a party and react quickly to ongoing developments. They would really start functioning out in the open, particularly the Fadiyan and Mujahideen, after the fall of the Shah, but by then they were quite a few steps behind the clergy. Thank you very much for your kind attention. 
Sirosh, thank you so much for what was, uh, as expected, a really rich, varied talk. And I'm sure you're all going to be trying to absorb that over the next couple of minutes or maybe next couple of days. So unfortunately, yeah, Professor Atobaki wasn't here when I did introduce him. I won't do it again. Obviously, he's got a very distinguished screen. He's sort of no need of any introduction whatsoever. Thankfully, he made it just in time. So perfect timing, just about. Professor Atobaki, please make it to the stage. And we're gonna, he's going to talk about uh, whether the Iranian revolution was inevitable. So please just uh, welcome because you didn't get the first time. Thank you to Oxford Tube bringing me here. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Stephanie, for inviting me, and thank you for organizing this panel. I'm very, very sorry I couldn't be here earlier because of my flight was cancelled because of the bad video in Amsterdam. Very honored to be here, and 20 centuries marked by two momentous revolutions. The Russian Revolution of 1917 and the Iranian Revolution of 1979. One in the beginning, the other at the end of the century. Six years of space time between these two revolutions. 40 years after the Russian Revolution of 1970, we come to the 1957. How the revolution was remembered in Soviet Union, when all founders of the revolution were either dead or executed. Was there in 1957 any question about inevitability of the 1970 revolution amongst the common people and non-party elites in Soviet Union? We don't have any valid documents or narrative to support this. In Iran, by contrast, some 40 years following the revolution of 1978-79, the narratives of the revolution and its discourse are still very dominant not only among the Iranian elite inside, outside the country, but also in everyday life. When people recall an outcry, the revolution mottos either in a paradoxical or cynical forms. Even more can be said about these two revolutions, the Russian and Iranian revolutions, and their outcomes. For example, by comparing and contrasting the goals and ideological organization, long-term outcomes, the two revolutions share important similarities. A, both were made on the ground of social and economic uneven development of Tsarist and Pahlavi monarchies, with the agency of the authoritarian modernization where there was modernization without modernity. Shah Pahlavi and Tsarist Romanov asserted that they need to be acknowledged as major player in the world politics, and both were strong enough to change the world. B. Both revolution unpredictable. Two months prior to the February Revolution, Lenin, in an address to the Bolshevik youth supporters in Zurich, stated that although they might leave to see the proletarian revolution in Russia, he, at the age of 46, could not expect to do so. 
almost one year prior to the Shah's departing Iran, American President Jimmy Carter proclaimed that under the great leadership of His, His Majesty the King, Iran has become an island of stability in one of the most troubled regions of the world. Do you want to have more similarities? See, for both revolution, the external pressure mattered. The catalyst factor of the First World War for the Russian Revolution and the Jimmy Carter administration liberalization policy and withdrawal of the U.S. backing of Iran. And D, both revolutions were international internationalist in tone. Their immediate impact could be traced beyond the national frontiers. And finally, both revolutions aim to go for a totalitarian regime, targeting, though unsuccessfully, to giving birth to a new man, Sovietsky Chelovek, in Soviet Union, and Insane Mu'mine Muvahide Tarazeddin in Iran, though both ended with creating Mafiosi Sans Frontieres. After this comparison, I now go back to the question of inevitability of the Iranian 1978-79 revolution. This question could be top-down by nature and nostalgically irritating if one asks what could be done on top to avoid the revolution. And alternatively, from below form of the question would be something like theologically elevating if one asks how far Iran was ripe for the radical change. Although these two questions, due to their trends and agencies, seems different, but in my judgment, they are very much intermingled. How far Iran was ripe for the radical change from below and what could be done to stop revolution from top. I'm not sure if in 20 minutes time I can touch both in equal terms. I do my best. Let's say that revolution or any social episode could be avertible only when it happened. 40 years after Iranian revolution, the common context for analysis of the revolution as 30 years ago proposed, articulated by John Farrand, are something like this. No, this is not for me. <laughs> if I want to categorize the, 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 the contextualization of these trends is one, the reason for the revolution was the cultural significance of the revolution's importance, political economy and the structure equilibrium is important, politics-oriented resources mobilization approach we should take, or finally, conjectural multi-analysis of various emphasis could be done to understand the revolution. In my reaction to this question of inevitability or arbitrability of the Iranian revolution, while I try to avoid the essentialist approach of naming a singular reason for the revolution, I opt on the ground of political sociology. I'm a social historian. 
So I rather prefer to, uh, to go for the political sociology and revisit the revolution by examining the interaction between the state and society with reference to both economy and culture. The state deficiency on directing even development and society's reaction to the prevailing uneven development. The period I opt for this study of this interaction is the long 15 years prior to the revolution, that is 1962 to 1977. During these 15 years, the Iranian state was based on six foundations. A state control of the large financial resources made available throughout massive oil resources. This is accumulation of the capital. The success of the economy stabilization and growth program and the intervention directly of the Shah in the economy. Three high social mobility, I come to that later, but low mass mobilization. Four, the embellishment of patron-client relation with the upper bourgeoisie, Ilhanian, the rest, Rezaei. Five, the exemption of coercive forces of the state. And the, finally, the reliance on Western and especially US support. These six pillars, foundation, I found it for the, where the state was based. Each of these six foundations needs deep examination. The time limit does not allow me to do so. But let me to say in short that during these 15 years, Iran saw rapid, albeit uneven economic and social development juxtaposed with a move from a milder form of autocratic governance to a more repressive kind of political dictatorship. If at the beginning of this period the degree of political exclusion for both right and left of the political opposition differed, by the end of this period, almost all sides of the political spectrum were subjected to insistent repression. The inauguration of the period was the introduction of third five years development plan, Barnami Omrani Sevo, that was from the 1962 to 1967. The plan was indeed the roadmap and backbone of what the Shah later called the White Revolution. In May 1961, after eight years' practice of wide-ranging repression overriding every corner of the political sphere in Iran, a rally was organized by the follower of Mossadegh in North Tehran, calling for an end of political exclusion and repression. Three months later, same year, in August 1961, Shah held his own rally in the east of Tehran, in Doshan Tape. And he announced in this rally the introduction of a series of widespread economic reform, the reform he intended to implement. A year and a half later, in January 1963, Shah, a referendum was held on the initial Shah's program of reform, 
and a series of far-reaching socioeconomic plan was adapted and Shah opted to call it White Revolution. Although there was a great confusion amongst the various political parties and organization how to react to the government's reform, nevertheless, one could see that for the opposition was almost impossible, left and right, not to endorse the Shah's reform. Maybe the protest slogan of students of Tehran University at that time was the best marker of this perplexity. What was the perplexity? Yes to reform, no to the dictatorship. Now back to the question of the inevitability of the revolution. My argument would be that 1962 was an option for the Shah to avoid the revolution. 15 years later, the revolution happened. If he would keep a balance between economic and political development, he could make it and he could avoid the revolution in 1962. And let me say that I don't support this conventional argument that the Shah's government lost its credibility and legitimacy never being possible to resume after the coup d'etat of 1953. I don't support this. The world has witnessed abundant examples that political regime with much more, much more brutal background than 1962-7, Shah could retreat in favor of national reconciliation. Shah missed this chance in 1962. This is the first miss. Following the implement implementation of the third five years development plan and the White Revolution, Iran went through a period of rapid economic growth. This growth was uneven. Thanks to the closer increase of the oil revenue from 20 milliards rials in 1963 to 182 milliards rial in 1972, this reform was practiced. Such increase of more than 50% of oil revenue we had increase. This increase of 500, sorry, 500% managed to secure the national GDP growth to 8.8%. And within this, the average annual growth share of industrial and mining sector was 7.7%. In this period, we had a migration of the workforce from rural to urban areas, resulted in a decrease of the labor force in an agricultural sector and increase in the workforce in urban industries. Hundreds of thousands of villagers surged towards the cities. Employment in the new large industry was amongst the final destination of this migration, which grew by 4.2% to more than 2 million people. Along the increase of the number of the workforce in large industries, the living and working condition of these workforce was precipitately improved. The average annual wage increased by 25% and in some sectors by 100, 200 and 400%. Next to this, the coverage of the health care, free housing, flare electricity, free water was done only for the industrial workers. 
a strong female presence in all professional, including an increase in the number of the female workers, widespread literacy program, increased higher education opportunities, improved healthcare and communication network, among others, were the direct outcome of the practice of such development state. The population mobility, which was the outcome of this reform, led to increase the right of the citizen, whom the Shah, in his leftist terminology, referred to as a free liberated man, free liberated women. Azad Zanan wa Azad Mardan. On the other hand, large scale rural migration to the big cities resulted in the excessive, uncontrolled, and unhealthy growth of slum settlement. Another indicator of this uneven development. In 15 years, the population of Iran increased from 23 million in 1961 to 34 million in 1976, while the urban population being doubled from 8 million to 16 million, the population of the urban showed the 48% of the total population of the country. The biggest growth occurred in Tehran with an increase of 2.7 million people. They lived in 1966, and that was increased to 4.5 million in 76. And due to the high rate of migration, the big cities could not fully meet the demands of the newcomers. Reaching a pinnacle in the mid-1970s, Islam dwellers, including all those inhabitants who were residents within the boundaries of the urban... Uh, I can't make it. I have to finish. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm late. I have to finish. There's only one page left. And then they came to the shanty towns around the big cities. I can tell you, for example, in 1976, we had 11% of the total population of Isfahan were living in the shanty towns. In Kermanshah, that was 10%. The growth of the number of these urban population proved that there's something politically and economically wrong in a country. The planning was not good. And compared to the working class, compared to the industrial working class, this Tohidastani Shahri, I call it laboring poor, became the backbone of the revolution. The uneven development, as such, could not have its own drastic consequences, including political and economic instability. The government policy of injecting new funds wealth into economy through increasing public expenditure led to the widening gap between the demand and supply in a society. Higher income and subsidy prices increased consumption by 12%, which led to a sharp increase in inflation by 18% every year. On the whole, the economic crisis undermined what the Shah government achieved a decade earlier. The gradual sign of the laboring poor unrest, and that was laboring poor, not industrial workers was an indication that the government apparatuses were unable to control the subordinated classes. And what about the middle class? As for the middle class, the demand was more political. Although the middle class benefited from the economic growth, which occurred together with a notable social development, nevertheless, the exclusive and coercive political practices was prevailing as before. While in social sphere, change in the urban and rural relationship became more vivid, 
the political space was still suffering from the post-1953 repression. I'm coming to the conclusion. Thus, the 15 years period which started with the inauguration of the third five years development plan in 1962, paving the way for the foundation and consolidation of a new developmental state, rapid economic growth, finally ended by a deeping economic crisis in 1977. And this is my argument that, in contrast to the common and predominant paradigms of the revolution, the Iranian revolution was the outcome of a more than a decade rapid economic growth, followed by a short-term phase of economic stagnation and decline. Back again to the question of inevitability of the revolution. Here is my argument, and maybe you are not agree with me. I can, I can say that yes, the revolution for the second time could be inevitable if the Shah in August 1977, when he decided to replace his long-lasting prime minister Hoveida with an economist Jamshid Amuzegar, in order to control the economic crisis, he would go for a figure as Shapur Bakhtiyar, or with much certainty, Dr. Ghulam Hussein Sadiqi, in 1977 when he left Hoveda. The Shah lost his chance for averting the revolution for the second time. What happened after the August 1977 was nothing more than an aggregation of perplexities. The revolution was finding its way under the skin of big cities, though not being predicted and prepared for by many. Thank you. So thank you very much, uh, Professor Atobaki. Thank you for coming. Thank you for seeking minutes, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And just one more time, just to thank. Uh,